So I've entitled this morning's study, Living Our Lives for the Will of God, because it is true that throughout the ages, from the beginning of the New Testament church historically, men and women uh, have sought to live their lives knowing and doing the will of God. Maybe some of you here this morning can empathize with that, that you know what it's like to want to know the will of God and then have the power to live out that will which is revealed. David in the Psalms was classic uh, on this subject as he says in Psalm 40 verse 8, he says, I delight to do thy will, O God. Your law is within my heart. He also wrote in Psalm 143.10, Teach me to do your will, for you are my God, and your spirit is good. We know that Jesus taught about the will of God, that it establishes a divine relationship. In Matthew 12.50, he said, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister. Jesus lived in the will of God. His father, John 5.30, he said, I can of myself do nothing. I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Powerful. We are told in Scripture that we can do the will of God that it leads to spiritual knowledge. John 7, 17, if you're taking note this morning, if anyone wants to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. God wants each one of his children to do his will. The author and the writer of the book of Hebrews said in Hebrews 13, 21, that God make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. And the fact of the matter is not something that I have, you know, I've mastered this. No, I, we're all a work in progress and we're all seeking to lay hold of this great uh, thing called living in the will of God, but it is a it is an everyday thing. It's not a a once you know this year and then I'll go five and do it another and then three and no, it's an everyday thing. As uh, James wrote to us, that many in that day were saying, "Hey, we're get, next year we'll go here, we'll go do that, we'll trade, do business," and James says, "No, instead you should say, if the Lord wills it." We shall live and do this and that. And so living our lives for the will of God, it makes sense that Peter would uh, enter this subject matter, at least in his first letter. He, he does also in his second. But we come to that subject matter as we deal with the passage, the verses that are before us today. So I'd like you to draw your eyes back, backwards just a little, chapter 3 to verse 18 of chapter 3. And today we hope to go all the way through chapter 4, to chapter 4, verse 6. 
But if you would look with me first now to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, in which Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in or by the Spirit. I'm going to stop there for just a moment. Uh, what we recognize is that there are two paramount themes right there in that verse. And one is the accomplishment of the Son on the cross, and the other is the purposes of God in Christ. And I want to deal with them in that order. The accomplishment of the Son of God on the cross at Calvary. I hope you understand this morning that there is no longer any sacrifice or atonement, one commentator writes this way, that can please God other than what Jesus has accomplished at the cross of Calvary. Even our own sufferings won't pay for our sins. The price has already been paid. Yeah, that's worthy of an amen. There are so many that have been led astray from this fact and this truth. Especially uh, throughout the middle, the dark ages, on into even the 1500s of the time of the Reformation, there was something that was called self-flagellation. Maybe you've heard of it. And it was primarily practiced by monks who wanted to be closer to God and they felt that if they hurt themselves, if they brought pain upon themselves, that in that suffering they would be closer to God, called self-flagellation. They, you might say, well, where on earth did they get that from? I mean, why would someone practice? If you've read any of the historical accounts, um, have been to any of the old missions, when we went over into Europe, we, uh, of course, got a chance to go through uh, a Dominican monk facility, old facility and see some of the material that the monks used. And one was a whip with a rock and, and metal on the end to which they would wah, whip themselves, wah, strike themselves, trying to be closer to God. And we said, well, where, you know, where did they get that from? The answer is a clear one, really. It comes to us in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. Now, the King James Version of the Bible uses the word mortify. The New King James takes that word and spreads it out in the phrase put to death. I'll read Romans 8, 13 for you. For if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, King James says, mortify, mortify the deeds of the flesh, then you shall live. That's where they get it. And they made a doctrine out of it called self-flagellation. And it is 
very sad that in seeking to understand the word of God that they missed the very point of what Paul was saying to the Romans, uh, to the Roman church when he says that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you mortify the deeds of the flesh, you put to death the deeds of the flesh. It's a spiritual realm and a spiritual work. It is not a physical one. And though Peter does use the sufferings of uh, Christians throughout his book, he he references several uh, times of suffering that he wanted to encourage and strengthen uh, the faith of his afflicted readers. Peter makes it very clear that he sets Christ completely apart in his sufferings than the suffering of any other saint. If you've ever been familiar with Fox's Book of Martyrs, uh, written in the 1500, many of you probably have this on your shelf. If you don't, it's a classic. But it tells of those who were martyred for their faith and experienced Great pain, great suffering. Uh, Charles Spurgeon tells of one man who wouldn't recant his faith in Christ and so he was chained to a post and wood was laid at the bottom of the post and the wood was lit on fire and ultimately his body burned. And as, as his body burned, it slipped through the chains And as his charred body lay on the ground, his dying words were, Oh, sweet Jesus. You see, the believer has the comfort of Jesus to carry him or her through the devastating hardships that we may face. But the fact of the matter is, is that Christ did not. When he went to Calvary, he went alone to accomplish the will of his Father. As we read in that precious uh, song, how deep uh, the Father's love for us, that the Father turned his face away for a moment as the entire sin of humanity was placed on the shoulders of our Savior. And we would say, why? Why such suffering? Second point of the passage and of the verse is so that we would be brought to God. To bring us to God. The just for the unjust to bring us to God. That was the purpose of the entire event that we know as Golgotha. To restore the broken and dead relationship that humanity had with their creator God. And how unfortunate it is, how wrong someone once even said that we don't take advantage of the fact that we've been given 
admission into the throne of God. We've been given access to have fellowship with our God and our King. The ancient word bring in ancient Greek language is the same word that's used in Romans chapter 5 verse 2 and Ephesians chapter 2 verse 18. And what it means is this, in the ancient literature, the word bring was used to mean admission to an audience with the king. And so Peter is reminding his readers, and we are being reminded this morning, that through the vicarious suffering and death of Christ, everyone who by faith places their faith in him has been given an audience with the king. How tragic that we would not live in the light of that, live in the the glory of that, that we wouldn't take advantage of that fact every day of our lives. Which brings us to verse 19, which Peter writes about Jesus. He says, by whom also he, Christ, went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Now this brings up an interesting, uh, of course, account of something that took place in between uh, death and resurrection. We know that he was in the tomb three days or in the heart of the earth three days. So shall the son of man be, he said. So we know by this verse and also uh, by verse 6 of chapter 4, if your eyes want to Go there real quickly. Verse 6 of chapter 4, it says, For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. These two verses, verse 19 of chapter 3, verse 6 of uh, chapter 4, tell us of a time when Christ descended into the lower region. into the abyss, into hell itself. Now, what he was doing in verse uh, 19, most agree that it was not uh, evangelism. He wasn't preaching the good news, although the word preached is used. He wasn't preaching good news to uh, spirits, but rather proclaiming victory because of what God his Father had done with him on the cross. We know that according to Genesis 6, 1 and 2, as Peter uses Noah as a kind of a reference, that there was great evil on the earth during that period of time. The Nephilim, you may have read about that. And what we do know is that the Bible also tells us of of a place reserved in hell for the disobedient, the fallen angels. And so it is well accepted by many that 
that Jesus did two things uh, in that uh, three days. First, he went down into hell and proclaimed victory to every one of those demonic spirits. I don't think he laughed, but I think he seriously said, you've failed. But the second thing he did also, which verse 6 tells us, is that to those who died in faith, you remember that uh, the graves were opened up and bodies went with him when he was resurrected. Who was that and why was that? Well, the body tells us the body. The Bible tells us that those who died in faith, they didn't necessarily know Christ, but they knew that a Messiah was coming and they lived their life in the light of a coming Messiah. And they died in faith. We're told that they were in Abraham's bosom. And so that Christ, after telling the demonic spirits they failed, went to Abraham's bosom and said, guess what? Victory is ours. And shared the good news, preached the good news to them that a day is coming, the day has come, that they would be released. And the graves were opened up. And they joined him in heaven. Which moves us to verse 21. If you'll go there with me. Chapter 3, verse 21, Peter then says, there is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Now, just as Peter used Noah as a reference in verse 19 and 20, verse 19 specifically, he comes back to this, he drew a picture in which, in uh, verse 20, when he said, in which eight souls were saved. So what we know is that the Old Testament foreshadows Christ. Constantly throughout the Old Testament, you will see and read about Jesus, about the Savior, about the coming Messiah. And one classic picture, of course, has to do with Noah and the building of an ark. And so when his family came into the ark, it is the same as coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the saving grace from the troubled and eternal uh, destructive waters of just living in this life. So they went into the ark and they were safe. But what happened around them? Well, the waters came. The, the ark eventually was submerged partially in the water. And so the troubled judgment of God upon the earth at that time 
was given, and yet because of their decision to by faith, uh, his decision to by faith build this ark, their decision to follow him into the ark, they were saved. Now Peter draws this picture again. Just as water was connected to the salvation of Noah, water is connected to the salvation of every believer. He uses the word baptism, baptismo. It means full immersion. And so we see here a biblical reference to uh, the necessity, the justification, the uh, importance of, those words being very clear, of water baptism to every believer who professes to know Christ and is able to enter into those waters. Think for a moment with me of the thief on the cross. He could not come down from that cross, but Jesus promised him when he said, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus said, what? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. And so Peter makes it clear in giving this that as important as water baptism is, that it's not about removing the filth of the flesh. It's not a, a physical thing that saves us. Being baptized in the water doesn't save us. Uh, there are denominations that believe infant baptism secures that infant until heaven. The Bible doesn't teach that. But what it does teach is that there are two uh, rites that Jesus modeled for us in the New Testament, one of which was baptism. He went into the Jordan and entered the waters at the will of his father. And John the Baptist you know, said, I have need to be baptized of thee. And Jesus said that the scriptures may be fulfilled. And so John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. The second rite is the taking of communion or the Passover meal that Jesus took with his disciples the night uh, before he was betrayed. And those two things are uh, shown to us by Christ in the Gospels, taught and practiced in the book of Acts, and then taught as valid all through the epistles. And therefore, as a New Testament church, we either embrace them. So I ask you this morning, if you're a believer in Christ, have you ever been baptized in water? Knowing of a fact in your mind that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for your sins and that you've asked him to forgive you of your sins and come into your life and live, the Bible teaches that you're to be baptized in water. And if you want to be and haven't, just come and say something. We'll find a swimming pool. We'll find a hot tub. You would be amazed at the things we used around here over the years. Our first baptism was on a front lawn of a home that we had our Bible study called Calvary Chapel. And uh, it was one of those dunk tanks that you throw the ball at and the guy drops it. And so we, and it was almost this time of year, it was like March, April, and so we knew it was going to be kind of cold out. And there were two or three individuals that had said they wanted to be baptized. So we put up this dunk tank on our front lawn. 
And we figured, oh man, how can we make it warmer for them? They're going to freeze like no business. I know. Let's empty our water heater. So we put up a hose to our water heater and brought the water heater water out there, opened the spigot, let all that you know, hot water dump into that tank. But there was only that much hot water. <laughs> so then we had to undo the spigot and turn, you know, put it to the regular water, turn it on, fill it up the rest of the way. That water was cold, baby, I'm telling you. <laughs> and that first individual stepped over there. Would you like to be baptized? Yeah, he stepped over there. You know, he just... We won't do that to you. <laughs> but we do want to see you in the water. Consider it greatly. Peter emphasizes it here, but that it's not the water that saves, he says, but a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My faith in him is what saves me. Water baptism is simply a public declaration of my faith. He tells us in the end of verse 22 that angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. That's powerful. Uh, Charles Spurgeon writes of this. He says that Jesus has gone into heaven. Because of that, his church is safe. Let not his church tremble. Let her not think of putting out the hand of unbelief to steady the ark of the Lord. The history of the church is to be the history of Christ repeated. She is to be betrayed. She is to be scourged. She is to be falsely accused and spitted upon. And she may have her crucifixion and her death, but she shall rise again. That's the history of the church. Her master arose, and like him, she, the church, the believers, the body of Christ, shall rise and receive glory. You can never kill the church till you can kill Christ. And you can never defeat her till you have defeated the Lord, who already wears the crown of triumph. Boy, did we not see that in these last couple of years, an attempt to kill the church, to strike it down, to close it down. And yet the believers said, no, no way. We're given a, a holy command to gather together. And by God's grace, we're able to continue to fulfill that. So we come to verse 1 of chapter 4, which we read. And Peter uses that word very prominent throughout the letters, the epistles, therefore. Okay, because of all that I have stated before, Peter is saying, therefore, Christ suffered for us in the flesh. Since he has done that, arm yourselves with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The interesting phrase. What does he mean by that? He certainly doesn't mean that the person who uh, suffers in the flesh no longer sins. I think we have it on the board here. I'll read it. 
This depicts the, the spiritual state of the victorious sufferer. It carries a note of triumph. He, has, he or she has effectively broken with a life dominated by sin. It need not mean that he no longer commits any act of sin, but that his old life dominated by the power of sin has been terminated. That's what Peter is saying. He says, if you've suffered to the point of, of pain because of your, your faith for Christ in this world, you've been brought a painful reality in some way, whether that was circumstantial, relational, physical, what have you. If pain has been yours because of your stand for Christ, and what Peter is saying is that you have made a break in your faith to no longer be dominated by sin, the power of sin. We are free from the power of sin. I don't have to sin. I can choose to sin. And when I choose to sin, it is a choice, but I am not dominated by the power of sin because that has been broken by the resurrection power of Christ in me. And why? Why these truths so necessary, so deep? Verse 2, that he or she would no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. That's the heart of our Father. He just wants us to live for his will. There were two things that motivated the conquering of the new world. Uh, Federer writes a book called The Dangerous Times of the Pilgrims. And he gives us a history all the way through the, uh, from about 900, actually 400 BC and, and forward, all the way to the Reformation 16, 1700, and then into the 18th and 1900s, and tells that when Spain and England began to send ships to conquer the New World, there were two motivations only. One was greed. It was a land grab. Go and get what you can, and we'll, we'll plant our Spanish flag. We'll plant our European flag. And those lands will be ours and all of the commerce in them, the gold in them, whatever we can get from them will be ours. And we'll use their, their societies to be our slaves. Did you know that before the slave trade was abolished by Britain under the hard work of William Wilberforce, there was another slave trade. It was of the Indians. And a, uh, a Dominican monk fought tirelessly to end that trade. Took trips over here, brought uh, monks over here to bring the Indian population here to faith in Christ. And went back to Philip uh, and asked for new laws to be made 
And laws were made, but then Philip died and they were never enacted upon. The second motivation for the conquering of the new lands was the gospel. The greed and the gospel. And it almost whittles down to why, what's important in my life. How is my life to be lived for the will of God? Am I motivated by a various level of greed, something I want for myself, something that's important to me, something that will better my world, something that will, you know, booster who I am in this life. I'm not speaking against uh, building one another up. The Bible tells us that we're to be built up in our most holy faith. But we're not to have a self-focus. And so... The opposite, the antithesis to that would be the gospel. Living my life for the gospel. And what is the gospel in, in synopsis? It is the love of God and the love of what? Others. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. And you are to love your neighbor as yourself. That truly, really is the summation of the gospel lived out in my life. Now, I slip and fall from that. I have acquired things that I wanted for me. Don't get the wrong impression that, that you know there's some silver spoon guy sitting up here in front of you. I know what it's like to miss the mark, but I love coming back to the centrality of the scripture each and every time reading through it in context Chapter by chapter, verse by verse, I'm reminded, oh yeah, Lord, that's why you saved me. That I might live my life according to your will. Verse 13, uh, verse 3 rather, chapter 4, sorry. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. Stop there. Of course, Peter's predominant reader audience was Hebrews or Jews. In the mind of Hebrews, the Gentile, in the mind of the Jew, the Gentile was the sinner. Now, Peter learned that lesson early on in his conversion that he was not to call what God has cleansed unacceptable. His encounter with Cornelius and, and that whole scenario, read about it in the book of Acts. Peter understood that the Gentiles were to be saved. But as he's writing to this uh, predominantly Jewish audience, they would still, in their mind, even having come to Christ, might think that the Gentile world was the sinful world. And yes, there may be Gentiles that are now in Christ, but predominantly the Gentile world is the sinful world. And that's what Peter means by that. He says, whether you're Jew or Gentile, we've spent enough of our life living in sin. Now, I don't know if you grew up in the church and maybe you walked, you know, all of your lifetime just this close to God, but maybe, just maybe, some of you know what it's like to walk apart from God, to be living your life seeking to just, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. You're awfully quiet. 
And if that's you, it is me, then this verse resonates. I hope it resonates with you like it does resonate with me. I spent enough of my time doing that. Why would I want to continue to do that? No, I don't want to continue to do that. Because Christ has saved me. We walked in lewdness and lust and drunkenness and revelries, drinking parties and abominable abominable idolatries. And he says in verse 4, he says, in regard to these things, they, guess who that would be, think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. I remember when I first came to the Lord, rededicated my life in 1980, and uh, I was working a secular job. Uh, I was frying burgers for Hambrick's Quarter Pound Burger. Uh, their main store was on High Street, MacArthur in Oakland. I worked at Hayward Plunge. I worked at Fruitvale. And I would rededicated my life, but they had seen that change. They had known me prior, many of my coworkers. And so they were like, come on. Bro, have a drink. Hey, we're going out for a joint after. You want to join us? Hey, let's go get drunk. You know, and it's like I would say, no, I'm not doing that anymore. And they would say, are you strange or what? You see, they may think you strange. And hopefully the world engaged in that ongoing lifestyle will think you are strange. Not because you're better than they are, but because of Christ in you. And what Christ in you leads you to do, and what Christ in you, how Christ leads you to live. Peter says in verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Day is coming when those who refuse to submit, they will face the great judge. And he leaves, to some degree, the subject of living our life for the will of God right there. We'll pick up where we've left off next week, but I close with this question. Are you today living your life for the will of God? Two great accomplishments that we read about in chapter 3, what Christ accomplished on the cross, every sin, both past, present, and future, the penalty of that separation from God paid for when we by faith, well, it's been paid for, and then we by faith accept that payment, full and complete, and are given admission into an audience with the king. And what was the purpose? So that we, each and every believer, would choose to live our lives for the will of God. You can make that choice this morning if you haven't already. 
And if you have already, you can reaffirm that choice. You can say, Lord, I hear it. I kind of went sideways here. Bring me back. And if you're on center there, then bless the Lord. Will you join me as we pray and as we worship? Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word this morning. It speaks deeply to us, your people. And because we know that it's your word, that it will not return void. It will accomplish the thing for which you have sent it. And you know every one of us this morning, Lord, intimately. You know our hearts. You know our, our desires. You know whether those desires bring you glory or don't. So Lord, in this moment, will you speak to each of us? If we've drifted, will you call us close? If we've never made that choice, Lord, will you move us to make it? We've heard you speak, Lord. And we are here. And we trust you. Have your way. We ask it in Jesus' name.